Hello and welcome to Living Being. I'm Patrick Randall. I'm Chris Park. This is the podcast where we talk about everything and anything to do with bees. Hey Patrick. Hi, how are you? How are you? Right. I'm good, thanks. Yeah, we've just had a, a quite a serious storm, thunderstorm, and a bit's heading to the hills now. Still a bit, and the sun's broken through. Still a bit of a pitter patter. Yeah. I've yeah. just been with the bees over in the apiary. I've got some people in the in the apiotherapy house at the moment. Oh, great. And they remarked how how the volume of the bees and the underneath the bee beds just got really loud. And I said, yeah, that's because <laughs> because it's just started raining and they've all come come sort of speeding home. Yeah. And it does, you know, and you get all that fanning going on in, in the in the hive and it's lovely, just lovely to, to have your head on top of that. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I'd love to go I'd love to come over and, and Oh uh, yes, yeah, you must. Yeah, you lie, must. Lie, lie on lie over it. And uh yeah, so they the the bees are a bit um bit tetchy with the with the thunder, are they or Oh, I haven't been I haven't been hanging out at the front of any hives during the storm. They, I did have a you know, a wander around this morning just to check everything's okay and uh, you know, you just as you do, check check the bees are coming and going and doing their thing. They were in quite a good mood. I had a few raspberries, you know, there's a second flush of raspberries going on oh, in yeah. the apiary. Always more raspberries in the apiary, obviously, for obvious reasons, than anywhere else. Right. Um, also because the kids can't go in there and pick them. That's <laughs> another reason why there's more raspberries in there. Yeah, yeah, they're right. They're they're in quite a good mood, I'd say. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I've I've been uh, yeah, I've been in the apiary and um, I've been noticing actually uh, it's a phenomenon that I'd read about, um, and it was really interesting to witness it firsthand because I I'm pretty sure I was witnessing yeah. it, um, which was the eviction of of drones from the hives, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and actually that ties in a little bit with our interview that's coming up oh, yes. um, with yeah. uh, our little our little excursion to Selborne Common with Stephen Fleming, the drone whisperer and the uh, co-editor of Beecraft magazine. That location recording is coming up shortly. Um, but we, yeah, was I was at the, at the hives just the other day. This is after we'd been to see Stephen. And the drones are now being yeah. evicted. So the drone yeah. is, a, is a male bee. The boy bees. Boy bees. Couple of thousand in a hive or something? Would you say? Would you say or something like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. On a good in a, in a good um, strong colony, but the drones, um, you know, their purpose is to is to mate with with the queen. Um, yeah, um, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure they boost the morale of a colony as well. Having a load of drones, yeah. I'm sure there are unseen jobs that they do or blessings that they bestow upon the hive. They sing loudly, don't they? They sing. They've got a louder voice. Yeah. But at this time of year, they become a drain on the on the winter stores. And therefore, you know, they are stung in the eye and kicked out the door and dragged out, aren't they? Forcibly removed, evicted yeah. from the colony. It's amazing watching it. Um, yeah. I was watching what was happening. First of all, some of the drone larvae were actually being taken out. Um, so the bees coming, worker bees coming out with drone larvae. Uh, and there were there was one bee that brought a drone out and carried it miles away 
absolutely miles right. away. Flew off with it into the into the distance. I don't know whether they yeah. tried to get them away from the hive actually, because e- even worker bees they do that. They try and carry them as far as they can before, right. before they drop them. Because it's they don't just, like the, 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 the unhygienic hygienic behavior, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, and this time of year again, if there are dead bees at the front of the hive, that will encourage wasps to come and right. and clean them up and therefore get a sniff of the hive and, and try and wangle their way in somehow. Oh, I see. So yeah, it's wasp season. It's wasp season, certainly is. Um, so yeah, this drones uh, is what we're going to be talking about with um, with Stephen. And um, just before we go on to it, because we don't want to reveal too much about what we were doing on Selborne Common, um, on that lo- lovely day, it was really hot summer's day, perfect day. Magical, absolutely yeah, magical. really magical. Selborne Common's an amazing place, uh, the birthplace of, uh, or the home of Gilbert White. And um, But what we were talking about, which is important, I think, to explain to people, is um, two, two casts, two members of the of the colony really we're looking at here is drones uh, the male bees and the queens so the queens uh, mating um and we were not really talking about workers in this episode are we it was a phenomenon that Stephen introduced us to uh on this magical day so should we have a listen yes yeah let's listen it's, it's such a good memory from going there Hi. I'm intrigued, I've got to ask. Sorry? I've got to ask, I'm intrigued. <laughs> what do you think's going on? I don't, I, I don't know. Right, so in that yellow plastic box up there, yeah. there's a queen bee and a couple of attendants. Okay. And we're looking for drones. So okay. there's a, there are places on the landscape where drones congregate right. and well, then please. hang out waiting for a queen to mate with. And they're called drone congregation areas. Right. So we're making yeah. a podcast. Okay. So you can um, you can <laughs> look at it. It's www.livingbeing. That's B-E-E-I-N-G. Yeah. Just do it to It's a lovely sunny day and we've driven past fields of lavender and banks of ragwort and we're in the kind of leafy uh, South Downs, the Na- National Park of the South Downs. I, I don't know what it's called. South Downs National Park. That's right. Sounds very grand, doesn't it? But actually we're in this twee old churchyard, a chalk church by the grave of Gilbert White with Stephen Fleming, an expert <laughs> you know, the word expert is just closely linked with the word experience. And I think you're the most experienced drone congregation area um, beekeeper that I know. And so who was, who was Gilbert White? Gilbert White was, many regard him as the father of ecology. Ah. He was a Parson naturalist born in 1720. In fact, tomorrow is the 300th anniversary of his birth. People come to Selborne because of Gilbert White. Right. right. It's a beautiful village and in fact I was travelling in India about three years ago and I was up in Coorg district, the coffee district near Mysore and staying in an Airbnb place and the chap there said, oh he said, I've just read a book. I've been ill and I read a book and it really was terrific reading it. He was an Indian. And it was about Gilbert White in Selborne. He said, do you know it? 
I said, do I know it? Yes, that's very close to me. And he was absolutely amazed. He said, oh, I bet it isn't the same today. Yeah. And I said, I think Gilbert White would feel entirely at home in the village today. Right. Not Absolutely. very yeah. much has changed. Yeah, you could yeah, look around, we could be stood here 400 years ago, couldn't we? And so Gilbert White was interested in, in bees, uh, obviously an ecologist, all nature, but bees in particular? Not even bees in particular. He was a beekeeper, uh-huh. but he didn't write that much about bees. Mm-hmm. It's just this one crucial element that he did write that we're really interested in. Okay. And I guess we'll come to that later. Yes. But he was a beekeeper, and that would have been skip beekeeping days. And interestingly, he was, I think it was the great-great-grandson of the Reverend Charles Butler. He was the great-grandson of great, Charles Great, great-grandson of the oh, Reverend Charles legacy. Butler. He was the, the grandfather of British beekeeping. Well, he wrote the first really practical book on beekeeping, and he was the one who popularised the notion of the queen as the head of a hive, not, not the king. Yes. And that was the beginning of the 17th century. And, and, and this grave here is his great-great-grandson. Yes. That's amazing. Um, what, a, what, a, what a thread of golden deliciousness running through these lands. And, of course, Charles Butler, I've just passed his church on the way here. Yeah. Because it's about 20, 25 miles northwest of here. Oh, Wooten, is that? Yeah, Wooten, St. Lawrence. Gilbert White obviously knew of his great-grandfather and probably had a copy of his, of his book, I'd imagine, or had read a copy. It would have been literate and... and and been able to read, yes. and obviously wrote about ecology, and then he became, he was a beekeeper, so he knew the hive inside and out. And the, and well, I'm not sure how much they knew inside those really? days, because it was really? kept beekeeping. So he's oh. constantly talking about swarms coming out of his hives. I yeah. say constantly, there's not that much that he wrote about bees. He was really interested in ornithology. Okay. Uh, well. You know, you'd maybe call him the first real twitcher. Uh, he was right. fascinated by birds, yeah. uh, especially the swallows and that family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, bees were considered to be birds before they were classified as insects. And uh, so there's there's another another link there, isn't there? But and that's that's the other interesting bit about about Gilbert White. Well, Gilbert, just just picking up on your your classifications, it was just about when Gilbert White was alive that Linnaeus was at work. Uh And I think he had some correspondence with Linnaeus. Oh, did he? So we had all this. You know, we had a lot of stamp collecting naturalists, if you like. Yeah. Uh, collectors and namers, but Gilbert White was looking at the behaviour. He's a really acute observer. It's, it's just amazing reading it today. We've got a lot of background that we can pick up from books. Mm-hmm. He was working from scratch and he was observing and yeah. it was just such amazing, tight observation. Uh, and, 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 he, and he got some things wrong, but he got a lot of things right. Yeah. So he wondered for a while whether they, uh, some of the birds hibernated really? in the area. Because he would see them uh, leave, or he thought leaving on the migration, but then he would see them a month or two later. And he'd wonder what all that was about. And this was probably other birds on the migration route going the same way. It wasn't the same birds at all. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but he's really good, really good thinker. He, he, it's not the easiest book for the modern reader, but it is beautiful if you like that, that language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Natural History and Antiquities of Selborne. But not everything went into that book. Stuff about bees we're picking up from his journal. And also he does another section on observations of various creatures. And there's observations of insects. And that's where we pick up the bit that we've come here to uh, discover today. Great. His, His brother was a publisher 
in London. And I guess that's how he got connections with professional naturalists, if you like. And he would write the two of them uh, letters regularly and put a lot of this information in. And that's what has become the natural history. Richard Maybe's book, Biography, of uh, Gilbert White, really well worth the read. Lovely biography, yeah. terrific piece of work. Oh, he's so descriptive, isn't he, Richard yeah. Mabey? Oh, he, he really, yeah. I've, I've learned so much from, from Richard Mabey's book on Gilbert White. And are you aware that Charles Butler was also a language reformist in his day? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so he, he was campaigning for the English language to be more onomatopoeic, to yeah. be written as it sounded rather than the, sort of the Queen's okay. English kind of thing. So okay. there, there's a trend here developing of this <laughs> language and writing and all these things. Well, there's a lovely bit of language here that, that'll give you a little taste of Gilbert. Mm. We're standing here at the grave, mm -hmm. which is very modest, as you can see. Yeah. It's outside, it's not in the church. He disapproved of burials within the church and he left instructions. I'm just going to read this out to you just part of the instructions. He said, I want to be interred in as plain and private as way as possible without any pallbearers or parade. Oh. And in fact, he was carried to his grave by, and he requested this, by seven labouring men. That's great. That's so that great. tells you a lot about the man. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? I like that. Yeah. And just where we are here at the church, on our left here is the long life and the short life, and that's where you'll find those referenced in his, in his book. He did a lot of walking down there. Yep. And then where we're going to go, which is up on the Selborne Common, which is quite a different landscape. But it's a very intimate landscape, because here we are in the hangars. Mm -hmm. We're at about yeah, just over 100 metres, I suppose. The hangars are just over 200 metres high. Yep. But you wouldn't know it from here, would you? And the hangars, is, that's just the name of a hill. Is that that's the steep slope that goes right along eastern Hampshire mm -hmm. uh, where the chalk meets the, the green sand and the rest. And mm -hmm. so we're going to go up this very steep slope. Uh, that you, You're going up 100 metres in a matter of a, a few metres across, yeah, so, so to speak. Everyday life happened around here in the villages and he probably kept his skeps around here somewhere. He would have kept them probably in the wakes, the house that's just across the street. Yep, yep. He was born in the uh, vicarage just right beside us, mm -hmm. then moved out uh, for a few years, came back when he was age eight, and then virtually Selborne was then his home almost for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And Selborne then, you know, we've come across roads, as you say, the lavender fields and so on, Back in those days, they were muddy tracks, muddy, sunken lanes. It, it was a real backwater in many senses, but clearly he loved it. Yeah. And so it to, and to go up to the hangars was quite an effort then. You actually drag yourself out of, the, out of Selborne and go further than a couple of miles. Was, was well, you'll some, see what he did to get up the hangars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was, it's such a steep slope. Uh, he and his brother did something rather special uh -huh. uh, that we'll walk up today to get okay. up the hangars. This, we're now at the foot of the zigzag path, and this was created by Gilbert and his brother mm -hmm. uh, over a number of years. And it was, you can see how steep it is just looking right up. You get a crick in your neck trying to look up at the top. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, this was common land then, but you could do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. A few years later, they created the Bostel, which is the one on the right, which is a more gentle way up. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting, he, he writes a bit about that. Uh, or rather maybe writes a bit about that and the, and the construction of that and the villagers building that as, yeah. a, as another way up. OK, and which one would you like to take today? Well, we're definitely going the zigzag. <laughs> okay, but I think we should wait. Social distancing and all that. We can hear some kids coming down and it's a very narrow path. Uh, and as you'll see, it really does zigzag. Yeah. It's best seen probably in winter 
because at the moment at Silver Groma Vegetation you can't see the zigs or the zags, but you'll feel them. For first of all, I'm looking for somewhere that might be bees to begin with, preferably an apiary or two, because you, you know you need you need drones, and they don't go. We don't think they go that far. And looking, I'm looking for a slope. I think in terms of, and I'll use a term that John Alcock in the in Arizona has used when he's looked for um, rare insects mating, hilltopping. I'm looking for little hilltops of the right height. In the right conditions, like today, today is, is beautiful. I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't say this, of course, because we haven't <laughs> we there. haven't recorded any drones yet. But but this couldn't be a better day for it. And critically, looking for a breeze or a thermal. I've never found a drone congregation area where there isn't a breeze. And people say, well, maybe you can create drone congregation area anywhere just by sticking up the lure. I can't. I only find them in certain areas, and you can actually, if you can roam freely over the area, you can actually delimit the area that you're finding them in. Do some people disbelieve in drone congregation areas? Do they think that you're creating them by the very act of looking for them? Yes, uh -huh. and it's a great sadness that Peter Tompkins passed uh -huh. away, mm -hmm. because Peter and I uh, were going to go out into his territory around Rothamsted, mm -hmm. because Colin, Dr. Colin Butler said, no, you just stick up a lure anywhere and the drones will come. And I'm saying, well, Peter, I can't say that's my experience. Let's do it one day. Let me come over to, to Rothamsted and let's, let's see what happens. And sadly, Peter passed away just a few months ago and, and we'll never quite do that. I might go out in his memory around Rothamsted just to do it, just to see what happens. But, you know, Dr. Colin Butler, and you don't argue with him, do you? Uh, he was quite adamant there were no drone congregation areas. I think it varies so much across the world. Mm. It's yeah. quite flat at Rodhamstead, isn't it? Even though yes, it's Chiltern it Hills, it's a flat yep. um, topography. And I think Carl Schowler, I think, when I think of Joan Congregation areas, I think of Carl Schowler, cause just because he had that mystical twinkle in his eye when he talked about them, and he talked about Iron Age hill forts and ancient British people sort of maybe creating Iron Age hill forts, because the, up on the, on the top of the hills you had this this spiritual experience of hearing all the, the, the volume of all this crowding of drones and bees and all the buzz and they would feel closer to their gods and he, he thinks there's a great link between bees and their creation of these, these kind of special places on hilltops. To be fair to Carl, I think he was saying that half in jest. And it's certainly what got me going in drone congregation areas. I read that yeah. in Beecraft in the 1990s and I thought, whoa, oh, I don't believe this, but I love the idea. I'd like to expand on that theory. I, th I think, because um, <laughs> hill forts, it's a misnomer. You know, very few hill forts have evidence of battles happening on them. And you know, quite often we find temples and burials and other things within them. And they're aligned to various, you know, the stations of the sun and the mansions of the moon. So everyday life happened in the valleys and the rivers and farms. And then people went up to these special places to be closer to the, to the, the heavenly bodies and to spirit for special times like, you know, fairs and festivals and ceremonies. And, and, but no one knows exactly what they were used for. And I've got a theory that perhaps that we kept livestock and perhaps uh, beehives within them. And they were defensive from bears and wolves and other 
other people. So that, that's a that's a, <laughs> no, and that's a bit out there, isn't it? But I think that's, that's very possible in a, in a in a an Iron Age culture that they needed somewhere to put their bees, and we find these enclosures in the in the new forest for scrap enclosures and old hive enclosures that are fairly similar to like small um, earthworks. I think that, I think Carl hit on something there. I think there's another way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a lot of these earthworks were actually territorial markers in the landscape. Hence they were on the sides of slopes. So that people could see them from a distance and know, ah, that's our territory. And being on the sides of slopes like that, these are the sorts of places, hilltopping, that you're finding these thermals, these breezes coming mm -hmm. up. And yes, one of the best drone congregation areas I know is on top of a bell barrel. Mm -hmm. Uh, on Ladle Hill, and it's absolutely super, and it's bang on top of the uh, on, on top of the bell barrel, uh, which is just off to one side, mm -hmm. and and clearly, I say clearly, it it would look like a marker to other people out in the Kennet Valley. Yeah. Uh, this is us. This is where we are. So is this a science or, or is it a seance? And perhaps it's both. <laughs> Do you, you know? Think, uh, sorry, Patrick. Do you think the drones are looking for or or sensing these these higher grounds or these? To changes in air pressure or something like that? Or? Do you know, I, I really can't answer that. No. I would be bluffing if I was to yeah. try to answer that. I think, you know, there's a, there's a few things to remember. What's a drone congregation area about? It's where we think that the drones gather in large numbers and the queens find. And remember, the drones haven't lived from one year to the next. The queens have only one or two or three outings or whatever. How on earth do they all find the same place? Mm. And in evolutionary terms, it makes a lot of sense that a queen would want to go to a place where there are lots of drones, because she has to mate with a lot of drones. So what is it that pulls them all into a particular area? Yeah, that's a mystery. Now, in Arizona, in some of the flat areas there, you've got what they call almost motorways and intersections, and the drone congregation areas seem to work around that. Uh -huh. In Germany, the Rittners looked at... Uh, uh, these valleys and where the light intensity was greatest. Mm -hmm. Quite different from hilltopping. Very different from hilltopping. So you're getting all these different sorts of environments and I don't see any real line to draw across them all and say, ah, that's what it is. Do you think there's, they're just like currents within an ocean that, you know, like a, that sea turtles will jump into, like this main current and take, take on, off on that current, like a conveyor belt, do you think there might be invisible air streams that these insects and flying creatures in particular it could be take magnetism. advantage of? It could be magnetism. Magnetism, right. It could be, it could be you know, polarised light. Mm. It could be lots of things mm. that mm. we have no, no access to. Yeah. yeah, not in our everyday state of being. Yeah. Maybe after a drop of me, <laughs> then, then we might be able to see a bit of it. And, and uh, I, I found a buzzard feather this morning, and then I saw the buzzard circling around, and it made me think, oh, is that how... Do drones do that? Do, the way, do you know about the flight patterns of drones and, and more complicated things like this, Stephen, uh, and how they might get some lift or get it's, up there? The, the literature on this is very often very decisive. Uh -huh. And I read it and go, oh, I'm not sure I agree with that. Yeah. And one of the things is that drones are there circling. Mm. I don't think they are. Right. Not, not, what I'm, not what I'm seeing anyway. I think, and I've spoken to Carl Schaller about this as well, and he agrees with me, that they may well be resting on 
leaves of grass, leaves, oh. bushes, mm -hmm. waiting for the action, waiting for some action and then taking off. And that would make a lot of sense because they can't be away from the hive for very long mm -hmm. using energy flying around. Yeah. So why wouldn't you just go, oh, this is the area. I'll just, I'll just hang out here for a bit and see, there are probably different see if any queens along today. <laughs> <laughs> there, are probably, there are probably some that, that, that fly furiously around and others that wait, you know, like the hare and the tortoise. I don't know. Well, the ones that fly furiously a... around are only going to be able to do it for a short period. Yeah, but you, know, you never know. You know. They're opportunists and the other ones are maybe slightly more cunning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, on that thought, if we continue on. So we just climbed up the mass, pretty massive hill. Well, pretty steep hill, isn't it? Yeah, about 90 metres up. And we're now gazing out the village of Selborne. Uh, still hear a bit of traffic noise up here. So yeah. we're getting close. We're getting close yeah. to the DCA. Uh, yeah, the first time I came up here, of course, I, I knew that um, Beowulf Cooper had brought a group of beekeepers here in the early 1970s and rediscovered the DCA. I think they were the first to rediscover it, so to speak. And I came up here a few years ago thinking, well, I just lofted the lure here and started walking. And nothing much happened for a long time until we get to the area that I'm going to take you to now. The vegetation on, um, on Selborne Common in those days was a bit different. These beech trees, a lot of which you see now, uh, weren't there. It was much more sheep grazing, especially over on the east side. And I think that is probably quite important about why Gilbert White heard this noise. Interesting to see meadow sweet up there. Yeah, I've always associated it with wetlands. Good to see it on the, Lots of it, on the it? chalk down. And, yeah. So you're walking up here with your lure, thinking about Gilbert, thinking about Beowulf Cooper, and thinking about stuff you've read from America and perhaps Carl Schauler and, and, and trying to discover a drone congregation area and this is the place where they were first, where the concept of drones congregating together were first kind of not discovered but maybe thought about and considered. Gil Gilbert was, was uh, uh, observing nature all the time and this particular phenomena he, he loved and, and noted and, and since then people have kind of picked up on that and the ball's been rolling and you're, you're now kind of steering that, that, that ship, if you like. <laughs> I don't think I'm steering any ship. I well, think I'm, I'm paddling, paddling along in the wake of others. Yes, but, yeah, of course, yeah, but you're, you're, you're continuing that, that avenue of research that, that, that perhaps you, which is such a shame, isn't it, that Peter Tompkins yes. is no longer with us in, in this world. And... I mean, would you call what you're doing citizen science? or would, No, I, I, would, I would just call it... In, in fact, it's almost a bit like... Gilbert White, if I could be so bold, in a, in a very, very tiny way. Hmm. I'm just thinking, oh, these are interesting. Uh, let's have a look at this. Let's see what's going on. And when I was walking along here, I wasn't thinking so much of all that. I was listening. Because the first mm -hmm. time I discovered a drone congregation area, I was out near my own apiaries, 
Yep. And I was in this uh, thing about the intensity of light and looking for an area and was wandering about around the apiary. Nothing was happening. And then I thought, oh, I'll go down into that little hollow down there. And I just happened to have the, the fishing rod, which is what the lure is on the end of, slung over my shoulder. And as I was walking down the slope, I heard this buzzing. Yeah. I thought, hello, what's that? And I looked around, and there were two drones buzzing around the lure. Yeah. <laughs> You're not supposed to be here, you're supposed to be down there. So I turned around and went back up the slope, yeah. and more and more drones came in. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I discovered, and that was a form of hill topping. That was on the slope. It wasn't where I was going, it was just lucky that I had it slung over my mm. shoulder. And it's listening, you hear them before you see them. So you realise that the more you move towards the centre of an area, the more drones there yep. were, and the more you moved away, the less there were. That's right. And as I moved right down that slope, they just disappeared. You can pull them out of a drone congregation area. With the pheromones. A bit. Yeah. But then they'll give up. But if you start outside in the same area, I haven't found that you can pull drones to it. So do you think they You've have like a herd mentality the because they're social insects? They're, they're definitely. Yeah. I, I think one of their cues is to see other drones getting excited. Uh -huh. Because then it's competition, but then it's like... It's, you know, yeah. oh, there's some action here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the gorse is not flowering. That means kissing has gone out of fashion. Yeah. Well, <laughs> lockdown, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So here we are on Sheepdown. And this is where uh, I started to believe what Gilbert White heard, or started to understand yeah. what Gilbert White heard. I can hear buzzing. Quite a lot of buzzing. That's loud, isn't it? That's amazing. Suddenly, we're into this open space, and it's a cacophony of, of, of drones. They must be up there. I can't see them, but, but and there's no apparent forage. It's mostly bracken, which they would not, normal bees wouldn't be interested in. Oh no, it's an aeroplane. <laughs> In Gilbert White's observations of insects, he wrote and he entitled it Humming in the Air. And he said, there's a natural occurrence to be met with upon the highest part of our dine on hot summer days, which always amuses me much without giving me any satisfaction with respect to the cause of it. And that is a loud, audible humming of bees in the air, though not one insect is to be seen. The sound is to be heard distinctly the whole common through from Moneydells to Mr. White's Avenue Gate. Any person would suppose that a large swarm of bees was in motion and playing about over his head. This noise was heard last week on June 28th. And this was in 1792, almost exactly a year before his death. And he had suffered hearing loss, bites of hearing loss through his life. So I've always found it a bit curious that he reports this a year before his death. He does say he's heard it uh, a, a number of times, but he, he, he decides to record it that day. Yeah, he said, I love the phrase, it muses me. So he'd obviously been here a lot and come to this, it's, it's, a, it's a fixed place, isn't it? He, he says it's this very spot that he comes to and then the drones come here and they always come back here. And it's, it's, it's like a sacred place. I could just imagine ancient British people 
experiencing this and feeling this place has a certain a certain spiritual power that you know over behind those trees doesn't you know you come to this clearing and here they are and you can feel it and hear it and it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and it amuses me it's lovely it's lovely and I, I, I looked at this and thought why did he report it that day what yeah. was was there something special about that day and especially you know if he's if he's had hearing loss through his life this is right at the end of his life his hearing can't have been that acute then surely and I went looking at the weather records uh, and that was very interesting because thanks to the internet these days you can pick up a lot of information from lots of different mm -hmm. sources if you just go looking and so it was described 1792 is described as a very wet summer uh, on the 24th of June thunder and hail a sad midsummer day hmm. on the 21st of June longest day a cold, harsh solstice. May and June were both cold and dry, mm. and July was wet and cold. Huh. So this was on the 28th of June. And on the 28th of June, at Selborne, I found a report saying glowworms abound on Baker's Hill. Now glowworms only come out, I understand, on very, very warm weather. Humid evenings, yeah. And I think perhaps this was a day or two that the weather suddenly came good. <laughs> and everyone and was all waiting these queens and drones were hanging around <laughs> in their nests waiting to go mate. Mm -hmm. And whether this was a special day that he really heard it very loudly because this was their one chance to, to get going mm -hmm. and they all poured out. So the volume would have been yeah. much louder than today perhaps. Yeah. 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 So and today I, is loud, isn't it? I mean, I mean, that's a plane going overhead, but, but when that plane's gone, there's just this constant whir, and, and it's, like a, it's like a song in the background. It is mm. really special. And this is the path he would have taken, because he says that along the highest part of the downs, and Mr White's gate that he refers to is his brother in Newton Valence, which is uh, over on our left, yeah. and Selborne's over on his right. Funnily enough, I, I've never seen any reference to money dells today, but I assume mm -hmm. that's in Selborne somewhere. It doesn't go by that name today. Mm -hmm. And I think I've read some of it. They simply don't know where money dells was. But this was, this was the track he would have done to see his brother across the Newton yeah. Valence, from Selborne to Newton Valence. So this would have been pretty much the spot he would have gone through. So the vegetation today, I think, is, is much higher around this common area. This is the one area on the common that, that's, that's flat. Mm. And here they, the drones can come down a bit lower. What's happening up above those trees? I would love to know. Is there a lot of action above the trees, or is it just down here? There's a thing about at what height do, uh, do drone congregations form. And lots of people talk about it at many metres above right. the ground. It sounds like they're low down here. Yeah, and you, you see the it size does, of this yeah. fishing yeah. rod. It's, what, a, a, a four-metre fishing rod. Mm -hmm. So give it another metre from where I'm holding it. So I'm only going up five metres. So just describe, this is a normal fishing rod. It's a normal fishing rod without any hooks, and on the end of it I've got uh, a little hook that I can attach the lure to. Now I haven't put up a lure yet, right. but I'll put the lure on that. It's a, one of these graphite ones, very light, so it's very portable. Yep. So you can carry it around discreetly until you put it up in the air like this. Yeah. And then everybody comes along and makes the, the joke that I've never heard before. Did you catch anything? <laughs> <laughs> I just say I'm fly fishing. <laughs> 
You know, I'm a believer. I've got to say that before you got the pole out and put the foam on in the end, it was so obvious that the drone congregation area was here. Yeah. It needs a, I don't know, doesn't it need a more romantic name or something? Like a DCA is a yeah, bit, it's it's a bit dry, isn't it? But yeah, we'll, we'll think, we'll, we'll muse on that. But, but it's here, it's definitely here. It's definitely this phenomena. The nuptials. The nuptials zone, yeah. Well, the, I, I'm going to call it the last chance saloon, yeah. and I'll tell you why at the very end. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so, so you got, so you got. Gilbert White didn't have this. This, this he equipment. didn't. He, he had no lure. He was just walking, and I have never heard a noise like I've heard here today anywhere without a lure. Mm-hmm. Um, I've looked for drone congregations in many areas in in the southern part of England, and everywhere I go, I get these strange looks. I don't blame them for these strange looks. But there's one place I didn't. I, I was just absorbed into the crowd, and there were lots of people there. Mm-hmm. Glastonbury Tour. <laughs> I was just a regular punter on Glastonbury yeah. Tour doing something a little bit different. Yeah, I probably thought, thought you were trying to catch a lightning strike or something like that. <laughs> and it is, in fact, Glastonbury Tour is, in fact, a, a DCA. It's a small one, because I think uh, I must go back to Glastonbury because mm-hmm. I could see an area that was lower down, further away, that I thought was probably a much better DCA. Chalice Hill, probably. Yeah. Yeah. But on the tour itself, once you got away from the, the, the tower, mm-hmm. uh, you could attract some, some mm-hmm. drones, but not around the tower. And that's the other thing I would add. I find that when you get too close to trees, the drones do want to know mm-hmm. because they're concentrating and yeah. they don't want any vegetation yeah. around in it's the like way. They're doing these sort of laps of honour, not laps of honour, but these preliminary laps. You're sort of getting warmed up, isn't it? They're sort of going round and round in this cathedral of oak trees above yeah. the bracken, just waiting to sort of get into second gear and go woomph and away they go so I'll put on the lure now I've got two lures with me today um, one's uh, artificial 9 ODA that is the queen pheromone now I used to be able to get this uh, from Denmark uh, it's no longer produced there is it synthesised or is it harvested from queens no, no it's synthesised and I was given some it's nearly two years ago in crystal form, which I haven't been able to get to work yet, mm-hmm. uh, possibly because I haven't been out on the right day. So I'm going to try that first of all, and then we don't the, need I've it. Got today, the do we? <laughs> I've got the ace up the sleeve today. Yeah. I've got a queen in a cage <laughs> because cruel man. because yeah. even a mated queen yeah. is attractive to drones. Uh-huh. Doesn't have to be a virgin. Nine ODA, nine ODA uh, is emitted by all queens. Mm-hmm. So, for listeners who who may be unaware of all the mysteries and the deeper mysteries of the hive and how the bees mate and, and reproduce, would you be able to just give us a kind of a quick, succinct answer to you know what what is uh, the the life cycle of, of a queen bee and how does she mate? Well, one of the curious things about sorry, I've just seen a drone just flash past. Uh, one of the curious things about queens is that they do one of the most dangerous things in their lives to mate. They leave the hive. Why doesn't it mate inside the hive? There are drones inside the hive. And we also know that drones move from hive to hive. So there could be some genetic diversity mm-hmm. within the hive. But she doesn't. She leaves the hive. And the drones show no interest in the queen, as far as we know, in, in the hive. And there's, some, uh, there's a lovely book uh, out that has pointed out that queens... Have uh, honeybees have evolved from insects such as wasps, which overwinter, which mate in the autumn or late summer, and then overwinter 
in some quiet little spot that's warm and cosy. And in that context, mating is not very dangerous, but overwintering is hugely dangerous. Mm -hmm. Not many are going to survive that overwintering. And since honeybees have evolved from that line, they go out and they, they, they go on the wing to mate. But they don't go out in late summer. They don't have to overwinter. Sorry, we're being interrupted by drones here. <laughs> they're, they're obviously smelling something. Which is a nicer interruption than aeroplanes. <laughs> so the issue is that even though it's the most dangerous thing that they do, they no longer have to overwinter as individuals. They're overwintering in a safe colony. Yeah. And it's called evolution, not revolution. So they're not going back to basics and rethinking the revolution. They are on the track that we mate on the wing mm -hmm. and they keep going in that direction. So why, why does a colony need to mate? How do, so the, Since just, just for people that don't know anything about, about bees, so the, the, there's a swarm and the, the worker bees make some new queens and what happens next? The first thing you've got to remember is that the honeybee colony is a super organism. Yeah. The individual is the colony. And to procreate, it's got to split in two. Mm -hmm. And it's got to keep, have succeeding queens. And these queens go out on the wing to mate, and they will mate with, we reckon, between 10, 15 drones. Yep. They're getting a lot of very diverse genetics mm -hmm. in the system. So they're going out to mate. They mate once in their life. Well, when I say once, they may go out uh, at the beginning of their lives to mate a, a few times until they have sufficient sperm on board that will then seed them through anything from one to five years. Mm. Seems less these days. And it's fantastic that, that that sperm is packed in in layers and she fertilises the egg as she lays them. So she kind of keeps it fresh in the fridge, if you That's like, right, yeah. and her egg's fresh. And, and then she can decide to lay either an unfertilised egg that becomes a drone with... 16 chromosomes, or to lay a fertilised egg which becomes a worker or a queen with 32 chromosomes. What we're looking at here, actually this is amazing because we are getting drones, we're just, we're just getting loads of drones. Yes, I'd right. like to move into the centre, like yeah. this isn't the optimum like place, them, yeah. we're too near trees here, but if we move into the centre I think we'll get an even better result. This is going to be interesting now because I'm going to put up the queen. Let's see how, if she's more effective, than the lure, than the artificial lure, right. or not. Yeah. Yeah. And would you have to kind of move it around as if she's flying, like kind no. of circle it around? No, but I'll show you an interesting thing. Yeah. Do you know, there's not much of a breeze here today, and that's interesting as well. Um, yeah. I want you to keep your eyes on this, please, in case this should fall off, because we do want to find this queen again. I would hate to lose her. Sorry, I'll look at that. Right. So we've just uh, moved the, about 10, right, 10 yards away. But the breeze has also picked up. Yep. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, look what's happened. They're back again. So the, their relationship with the wind and their speed and flight and dexterity is really important. And I can feel the wind on my back, so, and they're flying into the wind, aren't they? So the questions there are, is this wind breeze absolutely essential, or is it dispersing the pheromone better? Well, I think it's absolutely essential because when I move it around, we'll see them. We've got a, a comet now of about, I don't know, 30 drones perhaps. <laughs> yeah. And as I move it around and they're flying with the breeze, that comet disperses. They can't hold the shape. 
it can't mm. chase the queen. And then once it's flying into the breeze again, then it can do it. And one of the things as well, if you notice, drones will chase drones. They will chase mistake out another drone uh, for yeah. the queen. So just if something moves in the corner of their eye, they'll chase it. And... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's unnatural for them to have a queen so stationary, so they'd be imagining that she will be flitting around a lot more. The biggest drone congregation area I've yet found is on Greenham Common, uh, just south-east of Newbury. It's a flat area, it's about three kilometres long and about half a kilometre wide. And on the same afternoon, I went to three spots, two at either end and one in the middle, and within seconds, drone con drones congregated around the Queen. That suggests to me that they were everywhere across that common. And that's huge, three kilometres by half a kilometre. Mm -hmm. Some of them in my village, uh, the recreation ground is a drone congregation area, but it's tiny. I don't think it's much more than a hectare. And you can walk out of it and pull the odd drone but then you won't pull the drone to your lure until you get right up into the centre of the, the DCA again. I still love that phrase that Gilbert White said, it, it often amuses me. Much. It amuses me much. much, that's it, it amuses me much. And this, you know, he lived down there, he came up here many times, and towards the end of his life he thought, oh, no, I need to write this down. You know, this is this mysterious phenomena of... And he didn't know what was making the noise either. Well, he knew it was honeybees. I'm pretty sure he knew it was honeybees, but he didn't know the purpose. He couldn't see them. Couldn't see them, yes. Yeah. He knew it was honeybees, couldn't, couldn't see them. And that's... And he knew it wasn't a swarm, because mm -hmm. he knew the sound of a yeah. swarm. Yeah, yeah. So he knew it was... And you could see a swarm, couldn't you? Yeah. But also, this, the swarm will make a different noise. Yeah. Yeah, so how many have we got there? John Alcock in Arizona, I think he's now a retired professor at the University of Arizona. I was speaking to him about DCAs because he had done some work with rare insects and where they might mate in, in his area. And he coined this term hilltopping, which I've certainly adopted in southern England. But he also said that he had never witnessed an actual mating. Although he knew that the male insects went there, he never actually witnessed a mating happening. And you have to wonder, is this the last chance saloon? Is this where the drones go if they can't get any action anywhere else? Is this that last bar in town? Oh, we'll go there. I can't see any action anywhere else. Let's go and hang out there. At least we'll have a chat with the boys. But the other side to this is, here we're a beautiful day, 24 degrees centigrade, maybe even higher. I have never come across a DCA 19 degrees or less. We know that queens must mate in 19 degrees or less, especially in May, because it's actually quite difficult, surprisingly difficult, to get a good afternoon in May, and we know a lot of queens mate in May. So where do they mate? Uh, Beowulf Cooper talked a lot about mating near houses and thermals near buildings. Drew lots of diagrams, but not that much evidence other than ideas. Mm -hmm. But you have to think, yes, maybe they do mate closer to the hive, 
mm -hmm. uh, in, in cooler weather. Does that mean the genetic diversity is less when they're mating close to the hive? That's an interesting question. I think we could really get to the heart of what DCAs are about if we could track a virgin queen and watch where she went. We know where the drones go. We don't really know where the queens so go. So surprised that's never been done. The tracking technology is just not quite there. Uh -huh. And in any case, I suspect that interfering with a virgin queen at that point yeah. may well cause the workers to turn on her. I don't know, it'd be, it'd be really interesting. But you'd have to fix something to the, to the Virgin Queen, who, remember, the Virgin Queen's getting buffeted around the hive anyway. When she's a virgin, they, the workers don't have much tolerance. They just want her out and mated. And the older she gets, the more buffeting she gets. So I'm not quite sure what would happen if you put a tag on her uh, as to how aggressive they would get towards her. But I, yeah, I would love to know perhaps that. Perhaps some kind of long tube coming out of the hive <laughs> with a little door halfway so you can sort of quickly intercept her, tag her and, and let her go on her merry way or something That, like that. would be great. Mm -hmm. And I suspect with the tagging technology we're getting close. Um, we've still got the problem of hills um, and ne needing a line of sight to do a lot of tracking at the moment but I think we're, we're beginning, the technology is beginning to develop that that's, that's, can be bypassed. Oh, well, Stephen, thank you so much for your invitation to drone congregation areas. I've learned so much from you today, and it's been great fun. It's been merry weather, and, and, and it has been a, a mystical religious experience at times just to be surrounded by these, this noise and this song in these very special places. Thanks so much for all your knowledge. And, and, and as you just said, there's so much more to learn and more to do. There are many mysteries aren't there, in the beehive, and, and we're only just, uh, just discovering more and more every day and long may it continue it's that classic bit of research the more you understand and get to know the more you realize you don't understand and don't know. <laughs> that's right yeah. it's socrates and he said i know one thing and that is i know nothing thank you Steve. you're welcome Amazing. I, I mean, yeah, many thanks to Stephen and many thanks to you, Patrick, for, for having the idea for inviting Stephen to be part of this podcast. And, you know, I've known him, I've known him for a while, but I feel like I really got to know him that day and, and, and how much knowledge he has and yeah. how much he has, how, how much of his life he dedicates to, to the, to bees and to the study of bees and beekeeping and, and so many things. That was yeah. really, such a nourishing on many levels on just, you know, experiencing the drone congregation area or the the nuptial zone, <laughs> and and uh, and and Selborne Common, and and it's sheer magic. Really, oh, sheer magic! Really enjoyable, and and of course, you know, all the all the the modern understanding we have of these places, and and the but so much mystery there still to discover. Absolutely, really, really great day out. But thank you so much. No, no, no. Well, it was, it was, uh, it was really Stephen's. Stephen's very modest, isn't he, about uh, about his uh, about his knowledge and. Um, doesn't want to call himself an expert, um, even though he tried to. Uh, well, I suppose he's the just drone whisperer uh, description yeah. is, is, is brilliant, isn't it? It's it, it's exactly what he is. But he's just uh, got a real understanding of of these areas, and they are mystical. And what was what I was so um, so thrilled by was getting there and hearing that noise. You know, it was just amazing. Yeah.
Um, absolutely yeah. amazing. Uh, and, and, you know, I'd obviously heard of these areas before and read about them and thought, oh, yeah, there's probably one up on Uffington Hill Fort or something and probably another one over over in Coles Hill or something, you know. But I've never really felt the need to go and check one out or, or, or research the, the... And I don't know, but now I think I will. I think, you know, on, on next year, on a hot summer's day, I'll, yep. I'll go seeking them out in my local landscape. and, and, and With the fishing it's, it's just such a special phenomena, isn't it, to have that those creatures in that particular part of topography doing their thing. And it's this yep. whole invisible, invisible world that we don't really often tune into. Absolutely. Well, there is actually supposed to be one near 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 where I live, um, uh-huh. up up on the hill. And I, um, I'm next summer. I'm going to go up there, um, and and really sort of listen to see see. Because mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is, we didn't need a fishing rod and a queen lure to no. actually hear that noise. It's already there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, it was really amazing connection with Charles Butler because I've been an avid reader of his book and and skept beekeeping. When I first began skeptic beekeeping, I couldn't find anyone to learn from, and and Carl Shawler and other folks pointed me towards these books by people like Charles Butler, and it's so it's really lovely to have that connection and that whole full sort of full circle of yeah, of it. yeah. And, and Charles Butler knew, knew the hive inside out, you know, and he was a skeptic beekeeper, but he kind of knew it inside out. Yeah, just but just by observation. Yeah, just by looking. Yeah, and of course driving the bees out and, and taking all the comb out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I think this. I think this idea of uh, experiencing things by by observation is is um, yeah. is just is just amazing, really. That that so yeah. often we we read books or and we we learn things from a technical yeah. point yeah. of view, but um, and and then we we fail to actually stand still and observe what's going on. And I once heard a story about a lady who um who who got chickens actually. <laughs> Who decided to to get chickens, and she didn't. She never read a book about keeping chickens, but what right. she did was um, was was spent um, days or hours or days following chicken these chickens around, just literally watching okay. them and just, just following yes, them, yes, yes. Uh, and just saw all of their habits. And you know, you can learn so much. I know, so interesting. Isn't it? And you think why, you know, because normally you just rush in, feed them grab some eggs and go you know yeah. but, and it's just it's just such a nourishing thing to do to connect to your what what you have underneath your feet and in your garden and just to spend those precious moments and learn that little bit more about their everyday behavior and, and it just brings such a wholesome a wholesome well-rounded experience to your life and everything you have within one mile radius doesn't it, it yeah no, absolutely to do it with everything <laughs> yeah be, everything really Okay, well, um, great, great to speak to you, and uh, great, to yes. speak, great to hear from Stephen. And um, follow us on um, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, check out our next episodes, and um, thank you for listening to Living Being. Thank you, cheerio, be well. <laughs> <laughs>